On the east side of the bay, across from San Francisco, sits Oakland, California, a strong, vibrant city with bustling streets. Telegraph Avenue and Broadway feel as people move freely about their days downtown. In and out of office buildings and co-working spaces, breweries, cafes, farm-to-table restaurants, and boutiques. Murals adorn every corner, punctuating the cityscape with bold colors. And you'll never forget it's an Oakland A's game day as fans rock their signature yellow and green gear with pride, streaming down to the stadium. The city's abundant parks provide a peaceful solace from all the excitement for relaxing and taking in the warm, breezy weather while overlooking the water. Over 400,000 people boast an Oakland address, enjoying its amenities and benefiting from the economic growth the city has seen in recent years. However, not everyone experiences the city this way. Unhoused encampments line Telegraph Avenue and countless other streets. Tarps and tents huddle before the murals. RVs and trucks full of personal belongings take up residence under overpasses. Extension cords wrap and wind around, running power from street lights to portable cooking devices and space heaters. The park benches look like abstract sculptures found in modern art museums, but in actuality, the seemingly harmless armrests serve an ulterior motive as anti-homeless architecture preventing tired people from resting in public view. In Oakland, nearly 10,000 people have no address in the city they call home, a figure that has doubled in the last five years. But housing insecurity is not confined to the makeshift spaces occupied by people without permanent shelter. Housing insecurity is the hidden feeling of not knowing where your next rent check is coming from because your paycheck stays the same while the cost of living rises. Housing insecurity is being blindsided when your building gets brought up by a hedge fund with plans for its future that don't include you. Housing insecurity is being forced to move far from where you prefer to be because it's the only place in your price range. City planners may be able to stop people from sleeping on benches, but there is no clever solution to the cascade of interconnected problems we regularly refer to as the housing crisis. My name is Amaria Jones, and on this season of Moral Courage Radio, I will guide you through stories from the front lines of the fight for the human right to housing in the United States. Across our three previous seasons, we've chronicled individuals and communities that responded to the most critical human rights crises faced by the United States in recent years. The Ferguson Uprising, the struggle for immigrant rights at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the lack of access to clean and affordable drinking water in Flint and elsewhere. As we have in the past, this time we sought to understand a pressing issue by immersing ourselves in the place most infamously associated with it, to find people whose actions show us a way forward. When it comes to housing insecurity, affordability, gentrification, homelessness, the Bay Area remains the epicenter, so that's where we went. Together, we, a team of 16 undergraduate students, studied, trained, and traveled to spend two weeks in Oakland, and we are pleased to present to you Unhousing, Claiming the Human Right to Home, a Moral Courage project, a partnership between the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice. 
In this first episode, I will introduce you to a series of people we encountered during our work in Oakland, whom we will hear more from across the episodes that follow. Each in their own way exemplifies the kinds of bold and collective interventions that illustrate, inspire, and teach us what is possible. My name is Lailan Sandra Hewen, and I'm born and raised here in Oakland. Um, I Right now, I'm working for the school district uh, here. I've been in education for about 20 years, um, and I took a little break from education, and I got into housing. Um, I was working for Assemblymember Sandra Swanson, who is our Assemblymember who's represented Oakland, um, amongst other cities, and he assigned me to housing when I didn't know anything about housing. Um, I came in as an education and youth development expert, um, and it was in the middle of our foreclosure crisis. So people were losing their homes left and right. Families who had been in their homes for 30, 45 years, you know, were losing them because they got bad loans from banks that gave them crappy loans, basically. Um, and in that process, like I learned how the mortgage industry works and how predatory lending works and just saw this heartbreak that was happening in our town. And that was like the first displacement crisis was the foreclosure crisis, right? We had families who, you know, were so proud to have owned their home, right? To be stable, to be able to be stable. And from that stability, to be able to thrive and support their families to thrive, right? And have that equity. Um, and then we got hit with the displacement and gentrification crisis right after that. Um, and we felt it very strongly here in Chinatown. Most Chinatowns are located right next to downtowns um, historically. And so we feel the push like pretty quickly. And so Chinatowns, the history of them, right, is that this is the only place that we could live right because of racial covenants with housing right like we weren't allowed to own property in other places and then we weren't also allowed to be citizens so we couldn't own land right and buy property so it's really deep in terms of the history of these like cultural ghettos right because now it's a resource for us right now it's like oh we come here because we feel belonging right my family's history goes back 1906 to Oakland Chinatown. Um, so my family was in, this is my mother's side, was in San Francisco Chinatown when the big earthquake happened in San Francisco and Chinatown was completely destroyed um, along with most of the city. And there was a strong anti-Chinese movement at that time. And so people, a lot of the politicians and white folks didn't want Chinatown to rebuild actually. And so they were actually encouraging people to leave and not rebuild, um, although the Chinatown rebuilt first because they were like no we're staying we're here um but my family was part of the family the families that came over on the ferry um to oakland chinatown uh, we came to right in here into jack london um and kind of was part of the the growth of oakland chinatown there were still there were people here before um but that was when it really boomed um so kind of in the early 1900s um, my great-grandfather was a, um, a butcher at, I think, an Italian deli on 7th Street, right by the police station. And my grandfather worked at the Hotel Leamington, which was, like, the place to party back in the days, like, in the early, like, 1920s. Um, and he also worked at a Chinese restaurant right here on Franklin 17th. 
Um, so I actually moved back to Chinatown um, trying to, fr- to reconnect to my own family's history in this neighborhood because I grew up um, closer to the Diamond, out like closer to the foothills above Diamond, which is like East Oakland. Um, and, you know, never really knew and learned like my family's true history in this neighborhood until I started doing the organizing here and started asking my parents like about our family's history. Um, and finally, like, began to feel a sense of belonging and, like, purpose. And, like, you know, like, when they say, like, your ancestors are, like, calling to you and, like, <laughs> telling you, like, and guiding you. Um, that's kind of how it felt, really. Um, because I could see. Well, I can say in the last 10 years, for sure, the last 10 to 15, um, I'll just say, there's a lot more white people in Oakland than there used to be, and a lot wealthier white people in Oakland than there used to be. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. But what it does mean is the traditional communities that have been here, they're not here anymore. So where are they? And that's the housing issue. We couldn't afford this house now. The only reason we could, even with the land trust, the only reason we could, we, we kind of got in right at the right time. It was the perfect, the perfect moment where prices were low enough, you know, after the, the, 2009 recession we hit just right at that moment that we could get into this house we could not get into housing in oakland now it's not possible there's not a house on this block that has gone for less than five hundred thousand dollars but you see you see our house it's it's beautiful but it's small you know and it's cluttered because it's small Every house on this block looks something like this house. This development was was established almost 100 years ago. Every one of these houses are craftsman houses. They were all built around that same time, 1927, 1928. They're all approximately the same amount of square feet. Half a million dollars, 650, seven in this neighborhood. That's crazy. And it's not sustainable. And even the land trust, if the land trust, if we weren't here and they were to resell this house now in today's market, they would probably sell it for somewhere around 275 to 350, which is, you know, a steal below market. We couldn't afford that. We couldn't afford to be in our own house. <laughs> So where are the people going? Another thing is also what Shakini was just saying about the displacement of people. My friends that I grew up with in Oakland going to school together, they talked about how their families had to sell their families' homes that their grandparents bought and built. They couldn't keep up with the property taxes. That's what got them to have to move out of Oakland or move to a different 
location in Oakland instead of keeping their family homes. And that's another thing that's changed. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. You want to speak to that first? The day we moved in? The day we got our keys from Steve? The day we got our keys from We're Steve. We're so excited. It excited. Accelerated. Relieved. Relieved. <laughs> Feeling like it was magic. It was magic. Getting the opportunity to say I could show you pictures yeah, of what of our house looked like when it was empty before it was <laughs> But it was wonderful that day. It was all about getting stuff in. We had family and friends helping us move in and stuff, but just getting in the house and just saying, We're here. We're finally in our house. It was just wonderful. When we moved in when we actually got the keys when it was a done deal to have realized this lifelong dream that i had had well that we had each had separately but had never really believed would be possible until as a couple we began that process to have to be in that moment where we had realized that dream yeah, I think I yes. I think magical. Yes. I think magical is the way to say that. It yes, was yes. it was truly magical and we had such no, that's true. As a young adult, I developed this dream and this desire of being able to own a home one day. But for a period of time in my adult life, I experienced homelessness. I was I was literally couch surfing and living in other people's space for over two years. And Chris separately as a young adult had a similar experience with, with shelters, right? So that dream, which was formed in, in those experiences of becoming a homeowner, of having stability, the day we got the keys, the day that closed and we were in this house and moving in and doing the work of moving in, it was like, never again can anybody take this from me, from us. And that was, I guess, the relief. Would, would you say that's true for you too? That's partial, that's true for me too. Yeah, like I said, um, yeah, growing up, Poor, growing up struggling and uh, for two periods of time in my life homeless and dealing with shelters and dealing with having to live with other people sometimes family sometimes other friends and it was hard and I was just like one day I don't know when or how but one day I want to have my own I'm going to have my own and then with me and Shakina and her and I both having that life goal together we had opportunities to build upon it and make it happen with Land Trust. We just went for it and we both just said, we got to do this because it's our only chance. So yes, we, we did it. And that's just how it was. To realize the dream was magical. Yes. I'm a third-generation Oaklander. 
black folks, once they landed um, in the Americas, in the New World, um, had to remake a whole identity and a whole culture. And um, so the places where you find us in the United States, that's our NATO home. That, that those are, there's this term in anthropology called um, autochthonous, this idea that a, a, a folk, a human group of people sprung from the land in which you find them. And although not in the most proper sense, um, you, I think of black folks um, in their, some of their original landing places as having sprung from the land in which we find them. And even more so because we've had a history of being um, um, shifted and moved from place to place due to um, um, legal pressures, social pressures, and economic pressures. And when whole groups of people and culture have to disassemble and move other places, that means you're recreating anew again. So there's all these, these, these sort of like landing points where we've had to, in some sense, um, become autochthonous again, where we recreate ourselves. And so for me, my generations having been um, displaced from the continent and then landed in Louisiana and then migrated to the West for economic pressures, we had to recreate a community again. So Oakland is actually my natal home. There's nowhere I've ever been, no one I've ever known that is not from Oakland. And if all of those people and places disappear, then I disappear too. So Oakland is my lifeline of my identity, my history, and my culture. To my living memory, I've only ever been in one home, which incidentally, um, unlike most people in Oakland, is still the home I live in. My dad painted our house this like bright pink salmon color when we moved in, and it's been that color for many decades. Um, and so that's always the first thing I think about with my house. Um, and the second thing I think about with my house are actually the door panes and the, the window panes. I don't know why, but I hug the door panes when I pass through doors. And I just remembered like two or three years ago, I was standing in a bathroom and I looked at the door pane and I was like, oh, I wrote things on all the door panes in the house. So I, I don't know how I forgot that. So I started going around about a year ago looking at all the door panes closely. And I'm like, oh my God, I wrote something that I used to carve things into the, the, um, all of the door thresholds. So those are the first things that I love about my house. When I ask our city leaders during the running of a campaign why my city looks the way it looks, why my town looks the way it looks, many of their responses were something like, we have no control over the free market. But I entered into that, aware, into that conversation knowing that the free market in and of itself is a fiction, right? The invisible hand of the market is actually people making strategic choices, looking toward outcomes that may or may not serve the, the larger whole, the, the greater good or the larger whole. Um, the folks who were um, hoping that EPPREC could exist as more than an idea, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, um, came to me and asked me to join the board, and I refused. But what I did offer to do was help them launch the co-op element of the project because I was interested in a laboratory for some of the thinking that I had developed around um, solutions to um, black economic recovery in Oakland. So I was very excited about that and offered to do that work for free. And that is actually how EPPREC came into, into being, is that three or four of us volunteered to work for free to see if we could launch a real um, radical cooperative um, response to market forces. So we became market actors ourselves. We talk a lot about, quote, the housing market, 
But when the market unhouses people, it is conventional to point to personal failings. Someone didn't work hard enough, or didn't plan well, or save properly, or just fell on hard times. But in fact, capitalist markets of exchange actively unhouse people as a part of their design, and they do so in deeply discriminatory ways. Once we've named the predatory and unjust qualities of the housing market as it exists, as our storytellers detail, we must remake the system to work for ordinary people. From community organizing and cultural preservation to social housing and cooperative economics, the answers are often contained in old forms of building power from below. Claiming a human right to home in the face of a relentless unhousing market demands first recasting how we think about housing and then how we secure it for ourselves and our communities. If housing remains a commodity, then market forces will dictate who gets to have it and who doesn't. If housing is a human right, then we are compelled to build systems of protection for all. I'm your host, Amaria Jones. This episode was written by Meredith Robinson and Joel Proust, with original music from Eric Charlton. Moral Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proust. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with all your friends. Click subscribe in the app and leave us a glowing review. This will help other listeners find us.